Joe, what were you saying? Say we got to blow this podcast out. It's <laughs> the big one. <laughs> so everyone, Kevin's not here today, and oh it's our job to prove that you all want to listen to us, right. and not him, and not to <laughs> Kevin. And we're going to spend money in order to make sure that people listen to this, which people, by the way, already do, as he's often <laughs> fond of saying. Uh, how y'all doing? What's going on in your world? Everything's good. good here. Pushing products. Yeah, but talk, talk to me, Joe, you're, you're in, in your world of product. I know you're sort of getting closer and closer to uh, the, you know, pushing it out to real people. Now, this week, we saw some stuff for the first time, right? Or at least I did. And it's like starting to be a little bit kind of real. What is it like? And how do you know you're going in the right direction with something so ephemeral when there's like five users? Like, how do you... How, how, how do you know that you and your team are going in the right direction? Hard to know. Yeah, we've got a test flight. We've got, you know, a few hundred users on there. Uh, and, you know, letting it grow organically. Mm -hmm. But the numbers are too small to see real stats. So you're, you know, I'm looking in, uh, you know, looking at the data every day and I'm like, mm -hmm. why didn't this person give us notification permission? And right. <laughs> what, how come that person hasn't been back since last week? Mm -hmm. And and I'm harassing them and trying to figure out why. And, you know, and then we're adjusting our products. So it's more feeling than facts right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the numbers are getting bigger, you know, every day, more, more users. And, you know, hopefully with that more confidence, definitely mm -hmm. more questions, but um, confidence kind of comes with answering them and more and more to show into bigger audiences soon. I hope, I mean, yeah. we're, we're definitely, We've been working on this a long time. Team is really proud of what we've done, but anxious to get kind of real world reality checked on it. So, yeah, it's been fun getting it out there. So do and, you and like the early stage or do you like it more in the world scaling, iterating, playing with growth tactics? What's your favorite, Joe? I think it's one of those things where whatever stage I'm not in, because, yeah, I really was excited about, like, hey, we're going to, like, really, you know, hunker down and spend, you know, however long it takes to figure out, get this product really right and obsess about the details. Mm -hmm. And and that was really fun for a couple months. And then it was like, yeah, you get, at least I got really in my head yeah, about, like, are we building the right thing? Will anyone care? What are yep. we doing? And, mm -hmm. um, and then... You know, but then when you're out there in the field of battle and, you know, dealing with the reality of the world and you don't have time to go think about things and fix things, there's like fires burning and you're just yep. trying to react. Mm -hmm. um, so now I want to be in that stage, but uh, yeah, uh, it, it, I don't know. How, how, do you, how about you guys? Have you had any, felt like you've had an incubation period like this ever? This, this resonates, this language you're using right now resonates with me a lot. I'll say just from my perspective, when I started this company practice, I started it with a few people from Breather that I really liked. And we were like, okay, we want it. We just want to work together. Like we have mutual respect. We'll figure something out. It's kind of like our, our way we did it. And we raised a couple million bucks and then we were like, okay, like let's go out into the world just in stuff that we were motivated uh, to do. And before we had hit any level of product market fit, first of all, there's so few people. There's like four people in my case. And we're all doing 
I mean, it's a certain amount of work, but like it's every bringing on users, it's like building really fundamental things and they're almost like a really slow way in an absolute sense. And so actually, just like you didn't describe an existential crisis, but I'm a little, I did, a little bit am, am describing one where I was like, oh my God, like, why did I start another company? What the <laughs> fuck? I don't even know what the hell I was doing. You're, it's in this struggle of, of last time when I did something and it worked, was I lucky or was I smart? And, and, and now I'm on the other side and I'm like, oh, okay. So there's a combination of yes, you're lucky and you did right. But also you know how to be a CEO, you know how to build a product, you know how to hire good people, all these things. Uh, and, and so I hated that phase. And, and Andy and I have spoken about this offline, how we didn't really need in the same way to build products from zero at our last company, him at Nanit, me at Breather. I had instant product market fit at Breather and I never needed to build software and find out where the fucking notification button went. <laughs> Andy, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I have talked to, the, the beauty of Nanit was we're building a baby monitor. Yes, we added a lot of really cool stuff. We tracked breathing, sleep, and movement. We've built an incredible brand. But at the end of the day, it's not like we're building some new device. People rely on video-based baby monitors for their children. And so we had a long build at Nanit, um, almost two years from inception to shipping for the product rolling off the manufacturing line. And I find that pay... I find it very hard to stay sane during mm. that building phase, i.e., am I building, am I getting signal, is the product in users' hands? I find that to be the hardest part of any company. Mm -hmm. um, but again, as Julian and I were talking about, I didn't have to worry about where the cancel button was or so much interesting stuff when you find product market fit purely in software. Because at the end of the day, we had a product that provided utility that found yeah. it's in product market fit. Yes, mm -hmm. we had to tweak a lot of stuff over the over the long term to build it to what the product is today, but you found it from day one. And so shipping was the unlock for me. The two years of building was incredibly difficult and hardware has much longer cycles than software. So mm -hmm. the phase you're going through, Joe, I think basically drives me crazy. But I've heard from a lot of other yeah. entrepreneurs that they love it. So that's well, why there, I always like to answer, ask this question. It's a, it's a great question, Andy. And I'm, I'm going to say, I, I think everybody likes success. It's kind of a silly thing to say. But I, what I will say is, is I am effective at scale. I'm, I'm, I, I did code when I was a kid. It was a thing that I started doing and that I think when presented with a certain limited technical problem, I could probably still solve it today after some struggle. But like today I'm in this, I'm the bard of the Dungeons and Dragons party. Uh, I have no particular set of skills myself, but I can do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. But that also means that uh, I can't be doing it all on my own and succeeding. Like I could never, Joe, the way you build clout on your own as the first engineer, I could never do that. So I struggle with the smaller the team, I think the more I struggle, the bigger the team, the more effective of a CEO that I become. That's just my personal experience. Yeah, it'll be fun getting back to scale. Like, yeah, I remember moments at Clout where 
things that would take months would take days Mm. and you would see the teams, you know, executing. And we just, we hit a really amazing cadence and just kind of level of getting shit done that yeah. uh, will be fun to revisit as we, we scale this company. Because uh, right now, you know, it is very, it feels slow because there's just a few of us. Mm. And we've been grinding for a while now, but uh, as we get confidence and that kind of opens the door for more hiring and that kind of leads to more velocity that's up with, with of course tax on that too. But this is um, actually a question that we were having on the, on the WhatsApp a little bit this week was this discussion of what is essential, especially now, like you remember, like you thinking like you had a lot of money when you raised all your last round and you're like, we're good. Like I'll get the 500 K ARR, then I'll raise a hundred million. Uh, which is what you did in 2021, 2022. Now, uh, the conversation is a little bit like, what is essential? Like, for example, uh, because Matt Mokery, who's a famous kind of CEO coach in Silicon Valley, believes that a, um, a chief of staff is essential. And because there was another reference. Oh yeah, Joe Lelouz actually, who hasn't hasn't been on this podcast, but who is an amazing operator uh, and was a kind of PM-ish at, uh, dude at Etsy and then started Bison Trails and then sold it for a lot of money. He said to me, oh yeah, I operate almost exclusively to a chief of staff. I found myself doing the same thing. And, and uh, then as soon as things became more difficult, I immediately was like, wait, this is kind of like vestigial and not essential. And so I, th here's the reason that I'm bringing this up is I want to know as with your experience running three companies, going from like the five or whatever your size is today, what are the truly essential things as stuff starts to work? Like when do you hire a PM? When do you hire your first marketer? Like, how do you think through those problems? I tend at this point, it wasn't always like this, but at this point, tended to hire senior people and, you know, that are still doers though. That's key. Mm -hmm. Yep. But as senior of a doer, I can find, even if it costs more. Okay. And with the goal of keeping the team as small as possible from a just like total headcount perspective mm -hmm. as long as possible. Um, yeah, there are definitely ways I've seen that backfire. Like you kind of get old nation syndrome in a company yep. where you don't have the kind of young energy and, uh, and that has bit me before, but, um, but having people who like don't need babysat and are kind of intrinsically motivated and just can do their yeah. thing without mm -hmm. like a lot of structure mm -hmm. has let me keep the team leaner. Um, you know, without things like a chief of staff or lower number of product managers or whatever that might be. Mm. The one big caveat I'll say, I'm a big proponent of hiring senior, like legit HR people early. Okay. Oh, how early? Tell me oh, about this. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's I feel like that's one. Staff. Yeah, maybe it is. I mean, I feel like a lot of people I know will wait on that and they'll have somebody who's like office admin slash HR mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. And I really like to have like a 
awesome HR person early. I've been both clout and joy mode. I had incredible HR people. Um, and those people, what I, I don't know about you guys, but the people part of this yes. is the hardest. Oh, and <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wait, it's the, are you trying to say that you're socially incapable? I don't think that's what you're trying to say, right? No, I you're mean, trying just, to say, yeah. I am socially incapable, but also, <laughs> uh, you know, it is challenging kind of making sure everyone is growing in the ways they want to grow and that the yeah. company needs them to grow mm -hmm. and the dynamics across the team and the culture you're trying to institute and all these things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And having a great HR person to me is like a superpower of being able to see in the future, like mm -hmm. their ability to kind of smell smoke mm -hmm. and see where there's problems brewing before they yes. become actual problems and help mm -hmm. me address them. Uh, like that's, that's what I think I tend to hire early compared to other people I know. I, I so, read Joe, it recently. when you say early. Yeah. No. When yeah, you say Andy, early, yeah. what is early? That's I mean, what I want to know. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Mark, Mark Andreessen has a standard for this. I just read the interview. So first of all, I'll ask you, what do you think Mark Andreessen thinks about hiring an HR person? When do you think he thinks that is? And then you tell me what your standard is and why it's better. So I have no idea what Mark's is. Um, yeah, I have no clue. I, I do not even try to get in that dude's head. <laughs> so, uh, sure. For me, uh, basically Series A. Like as soon as it was like okay. the first hire at Series A, kind of for both companies. That so is really call yeah. it like and, and fifteen to how twenty many people. people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go on. Yeah. So fifteen to twenty people. Um. Like yeah, one of the very first hires post Series A. Post Series A. So to me, Series A. Last time was. Uh, 10 people, you're saying you're 11th person. So Mark, I, yeah, maybe ahead. like 15th, like yeah. <laughs> about, you know, between 15 and 20, I would try to add that person. So Mark, Mark Anderson believes it's 20 to 25. Okay. It's as soon as, as soon as there are layers mm. of management and why that standard, he has his own reason. It's actually from the high growth handbook, which you could I, you know, you know what pisses me off about that book actually is the fact that it has nothing to do with growing a business. It's like <laughs> if your business is growing, then here's the stuff you need to know. It'd be like, son of a bitch, I don't care about that. I care yeah. about growing the business. Why did you name this book that? And so Mark Andreessen talks about it and says that by 25, if you don't do it by 25, like things are going to go haywire. I found with my experience, I will say that. I became particularly dedicated to HR, having gone all the way up to 250, seen the effects of, I don't want to say breather had bad culture, but the effects of tiny things at 10 people and the, the consequences of that at 200, when the same flaw at 10 existed at 200 and what made that occur. I'll give you an example. Like for me, I used to almost like really encourage dissent because I didn't, I don't want just to have yes men around me, but the result of that was like in some corners of, of my com my company, like a really negative set of people. And now looking back at it, people like that are kind of poison and you need to get rid of them as soon as possible. But I didn't know those things. Right. And so I became like obsessed with HR related things. It sounds like you try to keep it. Well, it sounds like you 
prefer to focus on something else? I think having a great HR person is the same as focusing on HR. Like it lets, mm -hmm. you know, it, uh, it does enable me to like stay in, you know, whether it's product or growth or hiring or whatever thing is I'm spending time on, but I really do partner with that person and, um, mm. and you know, in both joy mode and cloud, our head of HR was like probably the person I spent the most time with. Yeah. Talk yeah, about why that is. You know, first, you know, definitely top three, just because mm -hmm. I, you know, the people are everything and it is the challenging thing. And, um, you know, and I got both cases, really smart people that, uh, like were real problem solvers and cared deeply mm -hmm. about the culture and what we were trying to accomplish and looking at the kind of where there were skill gaps and where we needed to grow and thinking about addressing that. And sometimes it was training. Sometimes it was, you know, restructuring and other times it was hiring or firing. It, it's making me think about how much I thought it was a checkbox last time and how much that was a mistake. Andy, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because Joe, you call it HR. And I think a lot of companies now call it people. Right. And exactly. I think there people is, and culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know you're describing people and culture yeah. and where Julian goes on it. When I, when I thought it was a checkbox, that's the HR mentality. Yeah. I, and I know that's not what you're describing. I think it was just a, it's the word you use. Yeah. But people and culture is very interesting. Having a great people and culture influences retention, influences hiring, influences, it hopefully helps solve problems before they bubble up. Um, and I think really just helps an organization. I can't say I've ever, I, I haven't done it. I haven't had a chief people officer or ahead of people. I, I'm probably late on that hire. Um, I also think now there's some version of this that's almost ahead of remote. And mm -hmm. head of remote is this same person, probably for Julian and I, less yeah. so for you, Joe, because I think you're co-located. But when you're remote, having this type of function in person is even more important. Um, I probably, to my own detriment, keep it lean outside of product design and engineering. I think mm -hmm. the first hire that I think is probably the most, I, I hire, I like to hire senior product people, uh, a senior product person to work with me. I like to hire a great designer, somebody who can ship fast mm -hmm. and iterate. I think that's one of my, that's where I over index always on a designer because it's so much easier to build a prototype yeah. than to build the product um, and to see how it feels and functions. Um, I kind of never hire the chief of staff or the ops people very early. That's probably to my detriment. I'll just take it on and deal with it myself. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find the chief of staff role to be very curious. I think any company under 150 people that hires a chief of staff, I sort of wonder what that person is really doing. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen chief of staff with like six years of sales background and they have a chief of staff, chief of staff title, but they're actually probably just selling. And I think that's probably okay. But for mm -hmm. so many of these companies, it's like, you have all this bloat and you have no product market fit. And that just doesn't fit with our wartime CEO mantra. Yes. That yes. was a zero interest rate phenomenon. And I'm not saying with Joe's suggestion at 20 people, 
or 15 mm-hmm. people to have an HR, ha, 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 have a people person is wrong. I actually think that's probably actually correct. Um, it's just there's, it's like when the company has RevOps, chief of staff, pro, and so many different ops functions at 25 to 30 people, it's like, who does work here? I know. I what totally is, agree. Yeah. It also I mean, it creates a sort of. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. Is chief remote a real title? Are people hiring that? I've never heard. That. It's ahead of people, dude. It's, it's, ahead, of it's ahead of people oh, okay. with a different name <laughs> because there's different problems, yeah. I think. Uh, it, Andy, I will say, since you're in New York, by the way, uh, next week I want it known that I will be the only person that has met all of you in person uh, because I will be in Los Angeles and I will have met Joe. Well, I already have met Joe, but I will have so met you Joe are what, during the podcast. I'm the head of remote. It's me. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, the, in New York at the time, Andy, most it, it was very clear that I was that the best heads of people were in San Francisco. The people that truly were heads of people, and not just rando HR people. And that might even be true today. I'm not really sure with like Datadog and other kind of A class New York type businesses, but at the time, to get a really good head of product. You needed to go to SF to go to get a really good head of people, capital P, not an HR lead. You would have to go to San Francisco. And so actually we were handicapped in a way that I'm not today. Today, my head of product is in fact in SF adjacent and is a class, not just for that reason, but partially for that reason, because they sat around other great product people. And and so the the movements in a lot of cases for very good tech talent in a number of, and I'm going to make a case in a moment that for different departments, it's in different places. So for heads of product, it's clearly San Francisco. For head of engineering, it's San Francisco, or it, it might be Seattle because there's Amazon and other places like that. For marketing, I'm actually going to make the case that it's New York and you're going to find better marketing people that will be able to spin all kinds of stupid shit, despite the, how bad the company might be. They'll still be able to spin it into something amazing if they're from New York. And, and so I, I think that, you know, I don't know where the head of people, head of, head of remote comes from, but like, that's kind of like how you index on that. I can see you nodding over here, Andy. Yeah, I generally, I really agree with you. If you fast, if you went back four or five years, I think I would fully agree with everything you just said. Um, for what it's worth, my head of product also is in at San Francisco. Yeah. My head of engineering is also in San Francisco. Um, I think now it is easier to find this type of talent in New York just mm-hmm. because there's been a migration. People want to live here and there's been enough big exits. And yeah. those people who worked at those amazing companies have started to move here uh, Mm -hmm. because they want to actually live here and there are more jobs here. I think design is San Francisco or New York. I think New York has very good design talent typically. Mm -hmm. Uh, New York, San Francisco has more product design talent just because that's a discipline on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And honestly, product design as a discipline itself is probably only seven years old at this point. Um, But I agree with everything you just said. I think remote and this new world that we live in where we can hire distributed or even hire hybrid 
really opens you up to having some of the best talent everywhere. But I still go back to the wartime CEO comment, and I wonder what the chief of staff does at so many of these companies. Yeah, it's I it, I was because keep in mind, I I have this un, unique or not quite unique, but unusual combination of functions, which is I operate as a part-time executive coach for CEOs, and I also am a CEO at the same time. I am fortunate that the one person I advised to get a chief of staff at that time when I had one, it was actually going through a scaling company and has now raised over $50 million and it was the right decision, right? But in early stage companies, my view has kind of returned to this has got to be as skeletal as it possibly can. And I'm always thinking, what is essential, right? And yeah. And so, Joe, it sounds, and, and by the way, Joe, I want to uh, dig into the whole thing. Probably, if you're running a consumer company, Los Angeles is where you're going to get better people. If you're in San Francisco, probably that's where, if, if you're running an enterprise sales company, that's probably where you get your, your enterprise salesperson. Do these things resonate with you? Yeah, I feel like LA right now for consumers is pretty special. And, you know, we've got some really great companies and, and obviously gaming is also really big here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I do not feel disadvantaged in any way looking at talent in LA for what we're building on a consumer product. Mm -hmm. So what is the next essential hire after your head of HR? I mean, you know, we're still kind of the bus factor of like any one person gets hit by the bus, like yeah. the, the whole system stops. So like, you know, we're trying to add increased capacity, like go from one designer to two designers, go, you know, mm -hmm. uh, scale up, you know, one backend engineer to two backend engineers. So like, we've got some just basic foundational stuff to, to grow into before we start thinking about like product managers and, mm -hmm. you know, even probably, you know, a community person for a company like us would be a big, that's true. Not, a, not an expensive hire, but a yeah. super high impact. Yeah. That would Are there any marketing be... people in your business? No. So that would be kind of like the start of that. Because yeah. I think marketing for us is community building. Well, especially with a zero cost, cost of acquisition and right. a $0 LTV. Yeah. yeah. Right. The one, the one thing I think that's gotten so much easier is like the ops finance workflow that used to be 15, 10 years ago, so hard. Mm. And now you can basically pay... Uh, an outsource firm, I don't know, like two grand to set up your yeah. your HR system into QuickBooks, into Expensify, into Ramp, into yeah. Bill.com. And then like you never have to worry again about where you're spending money, where the money's going, and then hire an outsource bookkeeper. That is like a massive shift from 10 years ago. Now it's, if you just set it up correctly, there is like a standard stack. You don't have to do anything and you can hire somebody for a thousand bucks a month to do your books. And that scales probably until you're like a million in revenue, if not more. And so that's one of the things that like, that ops finance function has really gone away with software, at yeah. least at the early stage. And now I've heard the opposite side of things. If you screw this up, it's a total disaster. Thankfully, I think I've been lucky and I've just implemented it correctly from day one and I never mm -hmm. think about it. What is the what is that essential stack? Talk about it and precisely. So, what does it look like? So for me, the essential stack is some kind of bookkeeper. So that's like 
I don't know, a thousand bucks a month to actually do the books. Mm -hmm. uh, from a software stack perspective, it's it ramp or expensify uh, mm -hmm. or Brex on the credit yeah. card side. Of so credit cards or expense management and just making sure everything is digital. QuickBooks as the back end. Mm -hmm. um, we use bill.com for any time we have to pay an invoice. And then something like if you're running a startup, just hire a PEO because you can give your employees much better benefits and then you don't have to worry about state labor laws. So yeah. JustWorks, Rippling, Trinet, or I think you're using Deal now, their US PEO product. Yeah. Outside of that though, after you have like, you pay somebody to set this up or you're done and everything's on yeah. autopilot and it's what? like software. And Deal is now even doing visa processes, which is unbelievable. Wow. Right. Because yeah. now it's like if you really mm -hmm. want to hire them, I'm not sure what a visa would even do if, if you're if they're if you're an employer of if they're your employer of record. That's how the process works, by the way, for anyone listening here. It's like a deal becomes or remote.com becomes your employer of record. If you're hiring someone, for example, like we have someone in Serbia. Right. And but now they're also giving people the ability to have a visa process done through deal, which, by the way, is a 300 million ARR at the moment wow. is that's how wild that company it is as one of the few companies started by a frenchman if i remember correctly that has gone anywhere and israeli uh, israeli yeah and I we gotta get alex on this podcast I'm yeah. gonna, the, mm -hmm. I, I i know he's a i think he is a second time founder and i'd yeah. love to hear his story because that company we're all customers so alex yeah. if you're out there or anyone who knows alex we want to get you on the show what we just speak out, we'll speak French into, or what you, you would you would say Yiddish? Maybe he's maybe. a French Israeli. <laughs> maybe he's French Israeli. That would be an amazing combination. So, uh, so it's just amazing how that whole stack has become more and more unified, and you can focus. Well, what you know, what it really presents is this problem of okay, just grow the business and all the other externalities of like pay the right person and get the bookkeeping done and all these other things like it puts them all to the side and keeps you at like facing the core problem, which we're kind of returning to your whole thing, Joe, like when you're facing the zero to one problem and you're like, this is not going anywhere. That, that process to me was very, that was really tough. And, and it actually, there was a phase where it, it led to me not sleeping. And if I don't sleep, like I, that's where I start to not function properly. And Same. that's where that's where I learned my hack of reading detective novels at night to get make sure that I, I go to sleep, which I still keep doing to this day. If I wake up in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, detective novel, I just pull it out <laughs> on my Kindle and it makes sure that I can go to sleep. So I, I don't since I don't want to jinx it. I feel weird talking about it here, but like it's it's caused uh, it, it, it's a weird kind of life hack that has really helped me out when I'm beyond zero to one, right? Like today practice has hundreds, but not yet thousands of customers. Now I'm like, the problems get more tactical and get less ex existential. Yeah. And that I find much more comforting. Yeah, because I mean, day to day, it feels like we're building something really important. <laughs> it feels like we're have mm -hmm. thought through this in really, you know, intense ways, but like, it you get into your own head or I get in my own head of like, you know, what if this doesn't, nobody cares and mm -hmm. you know, how are we going to know? And 
And it's hard to keep the team motivated on keep going faster. Come on, we got to push. We got to push. And they're like, no one's seeing this shit. <laughs> at, <Yeah>. least, <laughs> at least when you're out and they're seeing the bug tickets come in and they feel the yeah. pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not just you like saying go faster to go faster. It, I will say that that having accidentally ridden a wave of insane market size last time, Andy, I don't know if this resonates with you, but for me, like either one of the reasons that it was successful is this gigantic market size real estate wave, right? Like it's, and plus the fact that I was in the thick of it with WeWork, right? Like the fact that everyone was looking at commercial real estate and saying something is happening here just drove it, uh, not headwinds, but tailwinds that allowed the company to be easier. And never again will I run a business where the market size is like not clear. Like today, even though we started as a kind of coach focused product, we've now expanded to five or six other verticals, right? Like we have tutors and virtual assistants and other kinds of solopreneurs that use the product. And that's by design going after a very, very, very large market where there's hundreds of customers every day looking for a solution or thousands. And I would be, yeah, I don't know, doing it, doing a zero to one thing where I'm not clear about the market size. I guess you, have, I guess you have to figure, you figure out what your strengths are. Does that make sense? Yeah, I feel like I've never known market size for anything I've built. Right. Yes. Yeah. That, that's the exact opposite of the way I think about things. I go market size almost like market size and my interest, and then I'm like, how do I build a business around those two things? Yeah. Well, I think, Joe, your market size is sort of like Val's market size and it, that it is kind of almost unlimited to some yeah, degree. Like, do you, you want and a I job? are everyone who work? works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you work? <laughs> are you a knowledge worker? I think is the best way to describe it. Yeah. And so it's like something like a billion people globally. I, I can't define it. it. It's very hard to define it fervor. Yeah. But... There's not, it's hard to make an argument that it's not huge. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's very interesting. Your perspective on large markets, Julian, I think large Dude, markets are very, you know, I, I learned it from a VC to tell you the truth. I, I like, I had close relationships with enough VCs over a series of rounds that they would show me the, the decks that they presented to LPs. Right. And so they, I mean, Andy, I know in Norwest, you probably saw this and it's not a big deal to you, but I think for most entrepreneurs, it, it probably is. They're like, how does the venture capitalist present to their limited partner that will invest like $50 million or whatever. And so seeing how they looked at it made me realize outside of my own obsession with myself and how briefly in my twenties, I thought I was a genius before I hit the real world. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm a fucking idiot. You know, like in, in that era where I was confronting the real world, it's really challenging to run a startup and be like, oh my God, nobody gives a shit. What am I going to do? So I I was like, okay, well, what's going to turn in my favor? And what you realize is just like, there are why now. It's why why every deck has a why now slide. And that why that why now slide is so important. And Andy, I know like at the moment, a whole, because you and I were talking offline about how your product features that you're shipping, I think are A+. A plus plus vowel at the moment. And that's because you're, yes, this is kind of AI thing that's going on. It's like, it's like zoom. So infinite market size plus AI, infinite market size are hitting up against one another. And you're finding the most practical ways 
to ship iterative features. And, and so I'll, I commended you offline for that. I'll commend you for it here. Like, I think it's super. And so you're in a wave, but you just kind of did it by accident. Maybe talk a bit about that. It's not by accident. So I'm going to okay. tell you something. So Natted is an AI company. We don't really talk about it. We talk about it as a product company. If you go to our website, we never talk about the AI features and functionality. It's just that's been a that's been core marketing 101 for us from day one. And in 2019, when we were playing around uh, and starting Vowel, one of the big things we started to think about is what is the, going to be the evolution of NLP. And in 2019, NLP was very difficult to use. Uh, this is the beginning of transformer models. This is really, it. You, we just hadn't seen the type of gains we saw in deep learning on computer vision and in other machine learning, uh, call it categories, in language. And so we built a product focused on user pain first. And about a year and a quarter ago, we started to see these GPT models being pushed out. And we started to realize everything from day one, our vision, was possible. And so now we're in a wave. Um, and we're just trying to ship as fast as possible while keeping our quality up. And it seems like to me, every day, there are new models being announced. There are new strategies to use models. Mm -hmm. There are, I think Sam Altman yesterday said they don't think there's going to be any more gains from model size and from model size. And so our goal is to just take these type of deep technical underpinnings and deliver the user a Joe type consumer experience, something that feels like magic something that you don't think about it's AI, it mm -hmm. just works. Yeah. And it's been very interesting because I think since we've started really pushing out some of our AI features, everyone under the sun now has to have an AI strategy, especially anybody who's filling out. It's any legacy software business has to start thinking about how do I add AI on top of my core software experience mm -hmm. within reason so that we don't lose to the newer incumbent who's going to reinvent our productivity stack or reinvent our digitized form because so much of software is a digitized. Andy, what are you hearing from the companies using your product on how like leveraging AI through a third party product is changing their internal workflows? Like, you know, I think we're all thinking a lot about the next few years of work and how AI doesn't just impact our products, but like impacts the way we all work together. Uh, and what that, you know, we were talking earlier about hiring. Are we hiring as many people? And yeah. do the way we do meetings change and, you know, all these Big different questions. So I think the biggest thing that we've heard recently is from a company, or the CEO of a company called Homeroom. And I think the quote's now on our website. And he said, they save six hours per week per employee of admin time by using Val. Why is that? Well, what the? they no longer feel the need to have the entire team in a meeting. And I think Shopify has talked a lot about this direction in itself, that all of a sudden, pre-pandemic, three people would be in a meeting, and now 20 people are on the invite. So what folks are doing, what we're hearing from our customers is they describe Val as time travel. They're getting to this place huh. where they'll quickly read the summary. They'll be able to audit the summary click on a moment and, and listen to a stand-up, a customer call, a P 
uh, product, a product uh, or design crit or product review. Yeah. And so we're, we're hearing that it's so big. And then the one thing that I find so interesting that people really love that we rolled out. Yes. We rolled out publicly yesterday is now when you join a meeting five minutes late, we instantly pop up a window and tell you what happened in the past five or 10 minutes. And mm -hmm. so we're trying to give you instant in the moment insights into what's going on. And I think our vision to where this goes is really long and detailed. But what we're trying to do now is give you an assistant that has access to everything bi-directionally, whether it's what's going on in JIRA or what's going on in asynchronous communication. Because in that model, instead of going to Slack and asking the product manager what's going on with a project, you can actually go to Vowel and ask what's going on with the project and you'd have access to what JIRA or Linear says, access to what's been going on on daily standups, and maybe access to a meeting between product and engineering. And so it kind of solves that initial core workflow that we thought we'd get from Slack, hmm. but we've never actually gotten it. It's just replaced email and we, we get stuck in threads. I'm just like, to tell you the truth, Andy, um, Joe, I'm sort of listening to him. I'm like, is he the smartest among us? <laughs> that is fucked up. I did not think that. It, it genuinely, you're very good at talking about it at minimum, and uh, and and it makes what it makes me think of is is uh, how uh, how do I take human hours, things that would normally be a low leverage kind of human work, and effectively how do I turn them into zero cost hours and act as if they're infinite the same way you used to think of compute as being expensive. And then you start to think of compute as costing zero. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're going to blend very quickly asynchronous sync and synchronous information. And what that's going to do is allow you to a much deeper picture of what's going on in your company. And our companies are pretty small, but you can start to imagine what it's like at a Procter and Gamble or what it's like mm. at even a 300 person company, you're going to have a dashboard where you can ask questions and you'll very quickly be able to get the answer. And that function used to happen either on chat, i.e. Slack or Teams, or would happen on, would happen on calls or by emailing people. And you'll be able to get all that just from a Q&A interface. And my mm. goal is for that to be valuable. So, that's what I'm building. Um, and I find this year has just been so fascinating and moving so fast. Yeah. It's the fastest I've ever seen any market move. Joe? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely nuts. Uh, Julie, I'm curious, you, you deal with a lot of solopreneurs, like your whole business. Mm. Um, do you feel like they are, you know, because the, these are people using your product, so they are tech forward, but they maybe don't live in tech the way we do. Mm. Do you feel like they're tuned into AI and what's coming? Uh, we, we, I was noticing something uh, recently as I was writing in some customer notes in a part of our product, but just to give people a sense, like we try to kind of uh, take all the disparate uh, workflows of, of solopreneurs and kind of put them in one product and there ends up being cheaper. It ends up being, easier to like create automations and all these things. So it's like, it's almost like all these products plus Zapier, but without the Zapier a little bit all at once. 
and and so as I was writing these customer notes, I was like, wow, this is really wordy is what I thought. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I wonder if I could just have like a little snippet be created with AI here that would say to me, what happened to your last call? And it would be an instant ability to see what happened two weeks ago with one client and be able to say, okay, I can instantly prep for this call. And instead of taking five minutes or 10 minutes reading through customer notes, it would take me five seconds. And, and so, it, but I will say this, like it, it is hard to distinguish whether that's a, for me as a product person trying to build with a limited team, it's difficult for me to distinguish whether that is core product or whether that's a gimmick. Like is, I can make the case that almost for sure that if I have this, I can build it and then that'll get me to number one on product hunt, i.e. AI, AI hunt, right? And, but what, but is that really core product relative to all the other shit that I should be building? That's what I struggle with. And that's actually what I was pointing out about, about Andy's feature set recently is he seems to every time he's got a product launch and I consider myself to be a pretty good marketing person, but like every single time he's got a little product launch or a feature, I'm like, that's fucking amazing. And I find myself, it's difficult for me to distinguish what a quality AI quote unquote feature is or product instead of a gimmicky thing that is like a flash in the pan. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a novelty phase. But, you know, we've talked about this before. So many of these things are how quick you can develop these things. Like, you know, we had a one day hackathon and like four different products came out mm -hmm. because right. the, the APIs are so easy mm -hmm. um, that the cost from a development standpoint for some of these things to get the, you know, the, the novelty benefit of um, uh, being in the moment of AI and giving people something to, to play mm -hmm. with, uh, a lot of times feels worth it right now. But, but yeah. I think your overall point of like, you know, checking it against your real product roadmap is critical. I, I will also say that I've got a, a temperament of this is cool, so I don't want to do it. Like, yeah. I just have that shitty attitude. It's not a good attitude to tell you the truth. Like when I see good features and a competitor, this has been true throughout a lot of my career, honestly, is uh, when I see features and a competitor, I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm like, fuck them. I don't want to do it. I want to do it a different way. When really I should, really should be doing is I should be Facebook and I should be like, we're going to copy it and then act like it's our idea. Yeah. My view on this stuff is it has to be a 10x better experience and almost 10x productivity hack mm -hmm. uh, for it to really be value versus fluff okay. in kind of the AI space. And I think we've seen a lot of fluff on Twitter. We've also seen some real value. Mm -hmm. And I think it just depends on the workflow, like Intercom rolling out their AI feature set for ticketing, i.e. your support. That's really valuable because now all of a sudden you can just have it change the tone. You can have it clean it up and it really saves a lot of time. And if you think about customer support, typically it's a cost center and typically you're worried about how fast they can resolve the tickets. 
Mm. Um, I, I don't know if the feature that you described is fluff or is something that it would give somebody a 10x productivity lift. And that's I think a... that's one of the, the tough things. I do, have a vi uh, I do have a very hypothesis on the world that AI in general is going to reinvent the collaboration stack. It's going to kill a lot of old school industries. Mm. And I think in general, there's going to be incredible amount of applications built um, that are really going to displace knowledge workers across a lot of variety of industries outside of core technology. Um, and I think it's just a very interesting time in the space in general, I think everyone is sitting there thinking is what do I have to do now? I'm sure every public company CEO is thinking. Yes, every private company CEO. And, and the interesting part about it is until November or whenever ChatGPT launched, nobody in the world knew anything about AI outside yeah. of folks in, t in the tech community. And now there is this expectation from your mom or my mom that AI works. Mm -hmm. And the expectation for the last 20 years was AI doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We had all moved away from even using the word AI and moved towards ma machine learning and probably burying it under marketing copy. Uh, so it, how is this? How are you all thinking about the number of engineers you have? This is a, a critical question for me. I'm not changing the number of engineers I have by a great deal right now, but like, like how do you think about the productivity of an engineer relative to before when you have something that can write code for you? Yeah, it's feels too early to tell, but, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't imagine us reducing the number of engineers we have, like we wouldn't eliminate anyone, but I could definitely see it slowing the rate of hiring where, okay. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if it was like, to put this in consumer terms, like, oh, every 500,000 users, we're going to add another engineer. I'm making numbers up. Mm. We might be able to get like a million users per engineer because mm. each engineer is able to produce more. So even as the company scales, we just need fewer engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, like, it, it's hard to imagine. I don't know. It's it's hard to say what, but I... I I would bet money on having fewer engineers than yep. at scale than we would have five years ago. Three yeah, years I think ago, that's one exactly right. <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead, Andrew. Are you, you all using either the ChatGPT4, the ChatGPT Plus version, Joe, or Copilot, uh, GitHub's Copilot in your org? Yeah, we use Git, uh, Copilot, and then we, we are using... Um, open AI for a bunch of little product things. Yeah. That are We're awesome. using it to, uh, as a, as a core, um, use for a marketing project at the moment. And like, I can't see that going away. Yeah. I, I, yeah. If I'm thinking about it, right. But I, it's too old. It's also too early to say whether or not the, I will say there's a, there's this other thing that's happening, which is. Uh, the, the very obvious thing from us, from the perspective of marketing people, uh, I think I've shared before, 
probably search organic search is probably our number two channel today at practice and we deliberately have been leaning into it for over a year i have a long experience in seo from before i ran companies like venture back companies and uh what's not clear right now it, it is it is obvious that people are using ai to to sort of assist in the writing of pages and the result of that is sort of a cheaper high quality page than prior to give a sense of context, like a previous blog post that would be indexed by Google uh, would cost in just straight up like about a dollar per word or 40 cents or 50 cents per word would cost you about 700 bucks to write one very, very high quality specialized article uh, in dollars today. Now, the question is, is how automated can that become and still be considered a high quality page by Google? Right. Yeah, that's the the question that I'm thinking about a lot these days. Um, mm -hmm. So I think everyone is doing what you're describing. They're using Jasper, they're using Copy AI, or they're just using the GPT-4 yeah. version of Chat GPT+. So then the question comes, how long until Google ha has reverse engineered yeah. this and marked all AI-generated copy pages? As low-quality pages, yes. Yeah. yeah. The, I, this and, has to be a one-year phenomenon. I completely agree. And we were having an active conversation about this yesterday and saying, well, what is the inverse of a page that is AI-generated? Well, AI has a tendency to, for example, write bullet points, right? And so that's like one signal. It obviously is not producing links to other pages. So anything that produces links to other pages will probably have a tendency to be human. It doesn't produce images in the same way. And so probably anything that produces images, like we're increasing the likelihood that this is a high quality page in addition to the actual like text. So, so, but you have to presume that Google will figure out what an AI page looks like and probably maybe has or has not figured out what exactly it wants to do uh, with it. And, uh, but certainly we know that today indications of quality lean in the direction of, of humans thinking that other humans having written the pages uh, makes it more highly likely that, that they want to read it, right? But of course this completely turns itself upside down because like, the quality of of the chat gpt3 uh, or four or whatever responses are good that's the part that's really challenging about this so i you know everyone's experimenting i just me and i think a lot of other people just wish that we knew where to point our efforts because we still have a limited cause certain number of engineers it's like what what is a project today that's now worth it versus before etc yeah, no, I, I, what I'm waiting for, and I think this will be um, peak AI, I'm waiting for the first time we have like um, a musician who's actually fully AI to climb the charts on Spotify mm -hmm. and for us not to even know mm -hmm. because somebody has built up a persona that's fully AI driven with imagery, mm -hmm. uh, with video, and the songs are good. And so people have... I think there are just so many interesting implications on mm -hmm. the creator economy, on creative in general, on all of us building software, productivity, knowledge work. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's like the internet and I'm fascinated to see what everyone built.
Joe. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking, Andy was talking about, um, how do you know if an artist isn't a real artist and not AI? Mm -hmm. How do we know people we hire are real people and using real skills and not AI? And does it even matter? Right. Um, it's going to be some wild shit for sure. We're going to need some very serious deep fake detectors, guys. That yeah. is a, a great way to end it, I think. And this was by far the best episode yeah. of this podcast. And I think the numbers will prove <laughs> that out. Uh, Andy, great to see you. Joe, great to see you. See you next week in L.A. And everyone else, thanks for listening. And uh, remember, subscribe on all your channels and all those other things. Thanks shout for out, Shout out to Kevin. Enjoy the episode. Out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shout out to Kevin. Uh, thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the fans. It's the second time found this podcast. Talking tech news. The show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. Coming from a real place. Plenty ups and downs. Got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and bro, Giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The second time found this podcast. More building, less talk.